Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. I shared this story with our church already. If you've been here for a few years, you've probably heard this before, but Stephanie and I were um, at Walmart. This was a couple years ago now. We were at Walmart. I was telling somebody this story this week. It made me think of it. That's why I remembered it. But we were at Walmart, and we were going to have like a junk food night. You know what I'm talking about? And so um, well, Stephanie and I have very different junk food tastes. Stephanie's like a candy ice cream kind of girl, and I'm like a cake and pie kind of guy, you know? And so we, we always pick out different junk food, and we're going to have like a junk food night. And so uh, I told Stephanie, like, why don't you go get, you know, get what you want, and then we'll, I'll get what I want first because she likes ice cream, so it melts. You know, so you got to get that last and get home as quick as you can. But So we go to get some ice cream for her, and she's looking at all the, you know, different brands and flavors, and she loves, her favorite ice cream is actually, they don't even make it anymore, right? It's Ben & Jerry's uh, co- Coffee Heath Bar Crunch, but they stopped making it. Now it's like, coffee Keith Bar Crunch, like some generic replacement of Heath Bar. It's not like the real thing anymore. And so uh, she doesn't get that anymore. But uh, she was looking over the Ben and Jerry's flavors to try and figure out what to get. And then this is like word for word what she says. She looks at the case and she says, that one sounds like just my type. That's what she said, Veronica. That one sounds like just my type. And I look and the name of the ice cream was Chubby Hubby. And I was like real discouraged, you know, like, I mean, you could have said that a lot differently, you know, and, um, and it's, it's a good lesson for us. It's like, I have no doubt that my wife loves me. And if you know her, you probably think, yeah, she really loves you. And I have no doubt that she loves me. But sometimes, even if you love other people, you could kind of say or do something that hurts their feelings. Is that true? I mean, even the people you love, you might love them on the inside, but what you do or say on the outside might kind of communicate not love, right? And that's really what we're talking about in this series, baby talk, of how to grow up in our faith a little bit, how to go from everything being about me to everything being about God and his church and the world around me, right? How do I go from everything being selfish and self-centered? And so to do that, we were kind of looking at this one verse each week in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. And so uh, this is our last chance, but if you'll say it with me, ready? 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, oh my goodness, all right, let's try that again. That was as discouraging as chubby hubby. All right, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things, right? And so uh, the context of this chapter, if you've been here for the first two weeks of the series, the context of this chapter is he's talking about love. He's talking about this is how you really love people. This is how you really love the Lord. And he lists all these things, not that love is, but what love is supposed to look like. And he's not really questioning if they love. He's questioning how they love. He's not questioning if they feel love on the inside. He's questioning how they display love on the outside, how they show it to other people. And he's kind of saying, I believe you love the Lord. I believe you love the people in your life. But a lot of times the way you act or the way you talk is inconsistent with actually loving them like grown-ups are supposed to love each other. And so he comes to verse 11 and he's like, and I just want you to know, I was just like that. When I was a kid, I used to speak and think and reason just like a kid. But when I grew up, I had to put away childish things. And that's how love is. When you're a kid, you love like a kid. And, And you know your kids love you. 
but sometimes they don't act like it. They, they really do love you on the inside, but sometimes they say they hate you. They really do love you in their heart, but sometimes they act in a way that makes you think, do they even like me, let alone love me? And so at some point you have to reach this spot in your life where you're going to put those kind of selfish things aside and grow up. And our faith is just like that. So that's kind of what we're looking at in this series. And in week one, we kind of looked at how do we grow up and really love the Lord? And then in week two, we kind of looked at how do we grow up and really love God's church? And this week, we we're kind of looking at how do I grow up and really love the rest of the world around me is kind of the idea, right? And so uh, what we called that last week, if you were here, was sanctification, right? Sanctification is a piece of God's salvation for us. It's the part of salvation where he is maturing us, growing us up in our faith. He's setting us apart under righteousness. He's day by day for my entire life transforming me to be more and more like Jesus if I'm one of his followers. And so the first step I said last week is kind of like there's no tool that God uses more to develop me into Jesus or to grow me into more like Jesus or to sanctify me than loving and serving one another. That's like his number one tool, his number one. So he commands us like, love one another, serve one another. And as you're loving and as you're serving each other, you will grow to be more and more like Jesus because even Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life for everybody else, right? So this is kind of God's plan. But that isn't the end of the plan. That's just the beginning of the plan. That's kind of the beta test. How you interact with each other as a church family, as a body. That's kind of the beginning of the process. And God's kind of preparing you for something even more difficult, which is to go out of here and love the people out in the world. And if you think the people in here are a lot different than you, Wait until you run into somebody that doesn't love the Lord at all or didn't grow up anywhere close to the same culture you grew up in or doesn't think at all about rights and privileges and things like you think about them. They have their own set of worldviews and standards and beliefs. And now God's saying love them too. Love them just like you would love yourself. Wow. And so it's like we need the practice of church because i got to at least learn how to, how to love the people who kind of think like I do. Because i got to go out there and love people that don't think anything like I do. How do I do that? And that's really kind of what we're diving into today. That God's trying to sanctify us, to get us to be more and more like Jesus. And so he starts off by saying, love me with all you've got. And then love my other kids. And now go out and love even your enemies. That's tough. How do I do that? So we're going to look at a story today that kind of covers that. Loving your neighbor. The Bible says love your neighbor as you love yourself. And really neighbor doesn't just mean the person that lives right next door to you. We're going to look at that too in the text. But we're going to look at a parable. So just so you know, I'm going to cover some kind of big Christianese words today. So I want to Make sure I explain what they are. We already covered sanctify or sanctification. But the next one is this word parable. Parable is just a word that means story. Okay? It's just a story. So Jesus often taught using stories or what we call parables. Now when Jesus told a story or told a parable, it almost always was a simple story about everyday life but had a much deeper meaning to it. 
It was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It usually was something about your everyday ordinary life, but had implications for eternal life, okay? And so Jesus is going to tell us a story um, we're going to look at today that, that sounds like it's a story about your everyday experience, but really he's talking about eternal life in heaven. He's really talking about eternity in heaven. And that's really what Jesus does a lot of times. And so don't get confused by what this story is about. This story is mistaught very often in churches, um, very abused in culture even. If you're hearing people talk about social justice or, or Republican versus Democrat, a lot of times this story from the Bible will come up in that conversation. And that one side will accuse the other side of not being real Christians because they don't follow this teaching of Jesus. And the other side saying, well, you don't follow it the right way, so you're not a Christian, you know. And, and uh, so I want us to get the real meaning of this story from God's Word. So to do that, if you're going to follow along with us in a Bible or a Bible app, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. I'll put all the verses on the screen for you so you can follow along that way if you want. But really, remember the context of this story that Jesus is going to be talking about. How do you inherit eternal life? I'll show it to you in a second because that's the actual question he gets asked. But before we do that, let me give you the context to it, okay? So Jesus at this point in his life is surrounded by a really good, close group of followers. They, we call them the apostles today, right? But he calls these 12 men, and they stick closer to him than anybody else, and they go everywhere with him, and they um, learn from him and are mentored by him, and they're teaching the things he's teaching them to other people. And then the group kind of grows and gets bigger. And you find Jesus surrounded by now at least 70 followers, okay? Probably, probably a little bit more than that. But he takes 70 followers and it says he sends them out all over Israel to teach everybody they come in contact with the things he's been teaching them, okay? So imagine Jesus is sending out 70 missionaries, basically, They've been following him, and now he says, go tell everybody else the good news about me. And so these 70 go out, and they share their faith in Jesus with all the people they come in contact with, and we don't know anything about what that experience was like. The Bible doesn't tell us um, how many people received their message gladly, how many people rejected it, how many people treated them poorly, and how many people were glad to see them. We don't know any of that. But at some point, they come back to Jesus, and they tell him how it went, okay? And we don't know what that experience was like. We don't know what they told Jesus it was like when they come back. All we have is Jesus' response to what they tell him. And his response is he decides to pray and thank God for what they just experienced, okay? I'm going to read you the prayer in just a second, but that's the only context we get of what it was like for these 70 who went out and started telling everybody the good news about Jesus. They come back, and this is what he says when he's talking to God after hearing their report in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. That's it. Then he moves on. That's the only context we get. So whatever they told Jesus about how it went, he turns around and says, okay, thank you, God, 
for taking the message they just gave to everybody else and keeping it hidden from all the people who think they know it all and are already good enough and strong enough. But revealing it to the people who are childlike. Okay, now this could get confusing because we've been talking about growing up and not staying like a child, right? But in the Bible, there's this dichotomy. There's this um, kind of two sides of one coin approach to our life. And, and sometimes we're told to grow up and stop acting like a baby. And other times we're told to stay like a child. So how do you know? Okay, this, this is how you know. You ready? I can sum all that up from the Bible in just kind of these two phrases. Ready? The Bible is telling us, stay as much like a child as you can on the inside, but grow up on the outside. To whatever extent possible, keep your imagination and your wide-eyed optimism on the inside. To whatever extent possible, believe whatever God tells you to believe, even if it sounds like a fairy tale. That it can't be true. That's impossible. Because, but because God said it, I'm going to believe you just like a kid would believe their parent on the inside. But on the outside, I'm going to act like an adult. Does that make sense? So in this case, Jesus is saying, thank you, God, for only revealing the truth about your plan to those who are willing to believe whatever you tell them. To those who are willing to stay childlike. To those who are willing to embrace you and not be so stubborn and cold-hearted and wise in their own eyes and think they know it all. Because isn't that kind of what happens as you grow up? You kind of reach this point where you don't believe anything anybody tells you anymore. When you were a kid, you could like almost lie to kids that believe almost anything, you know. And then you kind of grow up and somehow your heart kind of shrivels up a little bit and you get stubborn you kind of get set in your ways. And now it's like nobody can convince you of anything new. You're going to have to have it proved to you. And Jesus is saying like, no, no, no. Stay like a child when it comes to believing everything God tells you. But grow up in the way you act towards everybody else. You get it? Okay, so that's the, that's the context of what's happening in this story. You get it? They went out. They tell everybody the good news about Jesus. It turns out some of them didn't receive it. Some of them did receive it. Apparently the ones who received it were the ones who were willing to stay childlike on the inside and believe whatever God was saying. And the ones who rejected it were the ones who thought themselves to be so wise and so strong on their own. And they didn't get it at all. And Jesus says, thank you for that, God. That's the context. That's happening right before what we're looking at. Then... This guy comes up to Jesus, and he asks him a question. I'm going to read you the question he asks him, but I want you to know up front, this is not about giving money to the poor. It's not about helping people that are hurt. It's not about you becoming more compassionate. Now, we'll come back to that. Those are all good things. You give as much money as you want to the poor, and you should be compassionate to people, and you should do nice things for the people who live next door to you. But that is not what this story is about. Let me read you the guy's question. Remember the context of the story because this guy is going to prove himself to be exactly who Jesus was just praying about. Okay? So let's look at verse 25, same chapter, Luke 10. This is what it says. One day an expert in religious law, an attorney, 
stood up to test Jesus. That's mistake number one. We'll call that mistake number one, testing Jesus, right? He stood up to test or to trick Jesus to kind of catch him in a gotcha moment by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. That's maybe the best question you can ask. Now, he has the absolute wrong motive, right? His motive is to try to trick Jesus, to test him, to prove that he knows more than Jesus knows, right? Jesus is getting all this fame and notoriety as a teacher. So here comes this smart guy, well-educated. He knows the Bible. He studied the law or the first five books of the Old Testament. He knows them inside and out. And he comes to Jesus and he's like, ah, watch this. I'm about to prove I know more than he knows. Teacher, what do you got to do to inherit eternal life? And what he's thinking, the subtext that isn't written out for you, isn't spelled out here, is what he's really thinking here is like, I know what it takes to inherit eternal life. But let's see if you know. So teacher, what does it take to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus kind of flips it around on him, kind of gets this guy to answer, right? This is what he says. Verse 26, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? You're the expert in the law. You're the, ex you're the attorney here. You know what the Bible teaches. You've studied it. So you tell me, what does the law of Moses say? That's the first five books of the Old Testament. How, how do you read it? And the man answers him. Here's his answer. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, just like you love yourself. Jesus says in verse 28, correct, right. Do this and you will live. The live is kind of a euphemism there for you will have eternal life. Yes, do this and you will get the eternal life. You're asking me how you get it, right? This, this is what you do. You're right. Love the Lord the God, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Correct, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. Now, this is where the guy is going to reveal, reveal his real character, okay? Because if you didn't know up front, he was trying to test and trick Jesus. Now, we know that because it's written for us later, but you might not have known that in the moment. The next words out of the guy's mouth ought to be, Lord, how could I ever do that? Right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Anybody in the room love their neighbor just like they love themselves? If they do, I want to be your neighbor because I got all kinds of bills you could love me on right? Anybody pay the same amount of bills for their neighbor that they pay for themselves? We're supposed to love our neighbors just like we love ourselves. I give myself a shower at least once a day, but I'm not showering my neighbor. I love them and all, but that's too much. Now, how many of you give as many Christmas gifts to your neighbor's kids as you do to your kids? Are you with me? The next words out of our mouths at this point ought to be, how could anyone ever love their neighbor like they love themselves? 
How could anyone ever love the Lord with all of their heart? I can love the Lord with some of my heart all of the time, and I can love the Lord with all of my heart some of the time, but love the Lord with all of your heart all of the time? I can't do it. But that is not the next words out of this guy's mouth. Here's his words. You ready? It's in verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. He wanted to prove that it was the right kind of question to ask. He wanted to prove that he was still smart. In other words, he didn't get what he was looking for from the first question. Because what he wanted was for Jesus to disagree with him so he could argue. You ever get into a conversation with somebody and it just feels like they're just trying to fight? Like they're just trying to get you to say the opposite of what they're saying so that they can argue with you and prove that they know more than you? That's this guy right here. He wanted to justify his intelligence, his strength, his wisdom, his knowledge of the law. And Jesus didn't give him a chance because Jesus just kind of agrees with them. You're right. That is what it says in the Bible. Love God with all you got and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Do that and you'll get the eternal life you're looking for. And so the guy's like, oh, that's not good enough. Let me think, let me think, let me think, let me think. I can ask him something else. All right, now I got him. Now I got him. All right, so then, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Maybe we'll disagree on that, and I can fight with you about that. Okay? And he reveals to us that he's the exact kind of guy Jesus was praying about five verses earlier when he said, thank you, God, that the people that think they know it all, the people that think they're so good, the people that think they're so wise and strong, they don't understand it at all. Thank you for that. And thank you that the people who are willing to believe whatever you say, that you reveal it to them and they get it. Thank you, Lord. Now here comes this guy that thinks he knows it all. He doesn't understand it one bit, does he? And so Jesus is going to answer the guy's second question now. He's going to do it with a story, with a parable that sounds like it's about everyday life, but is really about the guy's question. How do I get eternal life? By loving God with all I got, loving my neighbor as myself. Well, then who is my neighbor? So remember, we're still in that context, right? Now here's the story Jesus tells, starting in verse 30. He, Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. Sounds like a good guy so far. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a third guy comes along. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, two denarii, which is the, enough to pay for that hotel for like two months. Telling the innkeeper, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than even this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. 
That's the story, okay? Stay with me for a second, okay? You get the scene, right? Jesus tells this story. Guys traveling uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Along the way, he gets mugged, beat up, and left half dead on the side of the road. Three people pass the guy. First guy is a priest. Now, he must love the Lord with all he's got, right? He must love his neighbor like he loves himself, right? The priest sees the guy laying there, just trucks on by on the other side of the road. Okay, okay. A temple assistant, a deacon, a servant, a guy that's got like 13 serving roles in the church probably. He comes by. That's a good guy. Now, he probably loves the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength and all of his mind. And he probably loves his neighbor like he loves himself, right? And he goes over and sees the guy laying there, but then he decides, eh, I'm going to pass right on by on the other side. Now, you get a lot of different commentary, a lot of different theological background on this story. What's going on there? What was everybody thinking? What were their motives? They didn't have any motives because they're not real. This is just a story. You get that, right? There's no motives to these guys. Jesus is just telling a story. There is actually no priest and no temple worker here. Jesus is making up a story. You, you get that, right? Okay. So then the third guy comes along, and it's a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan. They hate each other. They're not friends. They're not neighbors. They're enemies. They can't stand each other. Jews and Samaritans don't get along. And he sees this guy laying there, and he goes over to him, and he takes his wine and his oil, which is probably all the supplies he had to eat that evening as he was traveling, they would carry with them some uh, flour, some grain, something like that, some oil to mix up with it and cook it, and then some wine to drink. So he's giving the guy basically his traveling food, his meal, so he can get back to some strength. He bandages him up, puts him on his donkey. That'd be the equivalent of us like putting him in our car, drives him to a hotel, Pays not for his hotel stay that night, but pays for his hotel stay that night and stays with him and nurses him back to health. And then the next day leaves and goes to the innkeeper and leaves the innkeeper enough money for the guy to stay. Now, if you're so hurt that you need like two months in a hotel to recover, you probably ought to take that guy to a doctor, you know? He's beat up, all right? And he leaves him enough money for him to stay there about two months if he needed to. And then if all of that wasn't enough, he says to the innkeeper, and while I'm gone, spend whatever you need to spend on the guy. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever above that he spends. Now that is a recipe for getting taken advantage of, is it not? If you, you stop by your local hotel on the way home, you're like, hey, I don't know who's in that room, 3C or whatever, but I want to pay for their night's stay. And you know what? Here's my credit card. Whatever they need, just charge it. I'll come back sometime and pay it. Oh, well, you know them, right? No, you don't know them. This is a stranger on the road and an enemy that you can't stand. This is extravagance. You get that, right? This is generosity beyond anything you can even think of. Now listen to how they end the conversation, Jesus and this attorney. He would, he's going to ask him a question, and the guy's going to get the answer right again, and I think everybody in the room would get the answer right. I think we'd all agree on the answer to this question. Here's what he says. You ready? 
Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And everybody in this room would agree, I think, that it was the guy who went over, the Samaritan guy, gave him all he had with him, put him on his donkey, drove him to the hotel, paid for his stay, nursed him back to health, and left extra money to buy whatever he needed. Isn't that the guy who acted neighborly? Wouldn't be the two that just walked by and ignored him in his need, would it? Well, the guy gets this right too. The attorney gets this right too. Listen to what he, his response, verse 37. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, now go and do the same. And the very next words out of the guy's mouth ought to be, that's impossible. Should it not? Should it not be, how could I ever love somebody like that? How could I ever be that extravagant in my mercy and my compassion? But it's blank. There's nothing else said. The very next verse makes it sound like, well, I guess we'll head out. They just head on out to the next assignment. The guy says nothing. There's no response. Why? Because he's blinded. He thinks he knows it all. He thinks he's pretty good. And if you've sat through this series, and along the way you've thought, this is something that somebody else needs to hear, you're that attorney. If you're sitting here today thinking like, I'm so glad X is here because they need to hear this. You're this guy that thinks somehow the gospel is for other people who aren't as good as you or don't know as much already as you know, who are self-righteous and think they know it all. You have no problem at all seeing the speck of dust in somebody else's eye, but can't see the tree trunk sticking out of your own eye. You have become wise in your own eyes. And we're all at risk of that. And I want to ask you two questions about this story. Here's the first question. Why does Jesus use a Samaritan as the third guy? If the point of this story is just to convince the man to be kind to his neighbors... Why would he use somebody that the man hates as the role model, as the hero in the story? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't he just say, like, yeah, a third guy came along and he showed the man compassion and kindness. Now go and do the same thing. Why does he show the hero of the story as a Samaritan? Here's why. You ready? He's trying to teach the guy, neighbor doesn't just apply to the people that live next door. A neighbor applies to everybody in the whole world, including strangers, including enemies. Okay, question number two. What's different about the Samaritan than the other two guys that pass by in the story? What's different? They all three see the exact same thing. The only difference is that the Samaritan felt compassion and took action on it. That's it. That's it. 
That's the only difference. The first two guys walked by and they worried about what would happen to them if they stopped and helped. But the third guy, the Samaritan, he walked by and wondered what would happen to him if he didn't stop and help. Do you get it? Do you see how extravagant what this guy did was? What is Jesus trying to teach us? He's not trying to teach us that we need to give to the poor or help those in need. Those are great things. He's not trying to teach us that if we're really going to be like Jesus, we need to give even more money to help people in need. Those are great things. Do it. I'm with you. Help. Serve. Give. Be compassionate. What he's trying to say is, loving your neighbor is not about doing nice things for the people that live next door. Loving your neighbor is about another big theological word. Here it is. Ready? Reconciliation. That's the word, reconciliation. Now here's what reconciliation means, you ready? It's just a big word that simply means turning enemies into friends. That's it. It's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He died on the cross because we were enemies with God. And he is trying to turn us into God's friends. Reconciliation, okay? So, so Jesus is trying to teach us to love your neighbor like you love yourself means that you do nice things, you treat people kindly, you love them extravagantly, you give above and beyond to every single person in the world, including the strangers and your enemies. And that is the only way to turn them into friends. Now listen. The logical conclusion all of us should walk away from that with is this. I can't do that. It should drive us to fall on our knees like the man in Luke 18 says, falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. It should convince all of us not that we should go out and try to love our neighbor better, but that we have no hope of going out and loving like that. And we should come to Jesus and say, I can't do it. I need you to do it for me. I can't ever love the Lord with all of my heart. I would like to. I can't ever love my neighbor like I would love myself. It would be great if I could. But no, I can't do it. So I desperately need somebody who will do it for me. Do you guys get it? So many times I've heard this passage taught in churches, and it's taught in the context of going out and trying to be a better person. That's the opposite of what's being taught here. What's being taught here is that what is necessary for eternal life is perfection. And you can't ever be that good. So don't think you are that good. Don't believe you're so self-righteous that you figured it all out and this is for somebody else. No, we are wrecked. Only Jesus can be what I should be. And I've heard this story taught so many times as if we're supposed to go out of here and be the good Samaritan. And if you hear this story and you believe you're supposed to be the good Samaritan, you are the attorney in the story. 
who doesn't actually understand how screwed up you are. The good Samaritan in this story is not you, and it is not me. The good Samaritan in this story is Jesus. He's the only one who could love that extravagantly. He's the only one who could give that generously. None of us would do it. None of us do do it. None of us could do it. It should bring us to our knees and recognize, I'm supposed to love my neighbor? Like, I'm supposed to love the rest of the world perfectly? I can't. And when you get to that point, you're ready to be rescued by Jesus. You're ready for Jesus to reconcile you to turn you from God's enemy into God's friend. What am I trying to say? The good news, the same good news that those 70 followers of Jesus took out with them and told everybody they could come into contact with, the same good news that Jesus was trying to explain to this attorney who asked him these questions, the same good news that we proclaim week after week in our church and conversation after conversation, one-on-one with other people, all of that good news is worthless if you don't believe the bad news first. And the bad news is you can't ever be good enough on your own. Do you get it? The good news about Jesus is worthless if you don't become like a child on the inside and believe it when God says you're messed up. You're bad on the inside. You can't ever be good enough to get eternal life because that's when you will say to God, I need you because I'm messed up. Are you with me? Maybe you've never realized how screwed up you are. Maybe you've always put yourself in the spot of the good Samaritan trying to go out and be better and kinder and more generous and more compassionate only to fall short time and time again. Maybe you can't even see it because you're so self-righteous. You think all of these words and all these verses are for everybody else. I am begging you today to come to God on the knees of your heart and say to him, I can't ever be the good Samaritan. I am so broken on the inside. I am so selfish and messed up. I am so childish. I want to remain like a child on the inside and believe whatever you say, Lord. But I want to grow up on the outside. I can't do it, but you can. So I give up. I surrender And I just ask you, Lord, just to save me because I can't be good enough to get eternal life on my own. And in that moment, you are reconciled. You are transformed from God's enemy into God's friend. And you are given what you could never earn on your own, eternal life. You are given justification, sanctification, glorification. You are given credit as being righteous in the moment. You are going to be matured into more and more like Jesus the rest of your life, and you are going to be declared glorious and perfectly righteous one day in front of God. You are given salvation, not because you were the good Samaritan, but because you recognize you've always been the bad Samaritan, and only Jesus could be good for you. So I want to challenge you in the quietness of your own heart right now. You don't need to repeat certain words after me. You don't need to have me smack you on the forehead or say any fancy prayer before you. Just be honest with God. Maybe for the first time in your life. 
recognize that you're screwed up and just beg him to save you. That's why Jesus died and rose from the dead for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. You couldn't be good enough. Will you admit it? That's the bad news. The good news is only available if you'll admit the bad news. Can I pray for you? God, it takes courage to hear your word and to act on it. It takes courage to hear your truth and believe it. It takes courage to hear about your grace and your kindness and to receive it to myself and stop depending on me and my strength, to stop thinking I know it all, but instead to trust that everything you say is the truth. And so God, I beg you today to shower down on our room courage for all the people sitting, sitting here today that you would give them the courage to not just hear what you've taught us, but to act on it, to respond to it, to, to have a conversation with you and surrender everything they are to you because they realize maybe for the first time that they can't ever be good enough to earn eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.